Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 9. Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Podcast is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we've both read, and we will dissect it, analyze it, and determine of whether or not it's worthy of its reputation and or of its place in the canon. My name is Tom Paneris, and with me, as always, on this journey through, uh, in this case, teenage heartache, is the chip to my Dale, oh. Stella. Yay! I think Chip is the wacky one, so it makes sense. And Dale's the one that wears the Indiana Jones-esque cap. No, you got him, you got him reversed. No! Are you sure? Yeah. Chip, Chip's the one that's Indiana Jones. Dale's the one that's Magnum PI. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We are going to be looking at Eleanor and Park by Rainbow <laughs> Rowell today. <laughs> what a segue! Yeah, it was a wonderful segue. Yeah. And uh, you introduced a segment or or a little game we play uh, uh-huh. last episode. Yes. So, which is emoji titles, and how would you yes. express? This particular book in emoji. Uh, so I'm going to throw it to you. Oh, I, I think I this would be pretty first. easy. I think it would be easy as well. I was looking at these emojis uh, earlier today mm-hmm. as I was on the phone with my mother. And I would say that I would have the um, boy and girl emoji with their little orange shirts. And between them, I would probably have a set of headphones, a pair of headphones. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I'll keep it that way, uh, which is a bit of a cheat because that's kind of the cover, yeah. of, the, uh, <laughs> the cover. of the book cover. But I yeah. also don't want to get any darker than that because there's some sad stuff that you could p- potentially put 
uh, in that. I mean, you could probably find a school bus. Is there a school bus emoji? Uh, probably, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I'll keep that because there's obviously some sad things that happen. But I would just go simplistically with the girl and boy emoji and then the headphones in between them. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Actually, what's funny is that you were saying how it's kind of a cheat with the cover, but I, the cover itself looks like an emoji. <laughs> it does, actually, yeah. Yeah, if, if you're unfamiliar with the cover to Eleanor and Park, and I have the hard cover right here in my hand, uh, the cover itself is it's like an off-white ivory type of color, uh, and... The front is uh, the backs of two heads. They're both wearing uh, headphones with cords. And uh, one of them is a, is a girl who has very bright orange-red hair. The other one is a guy who has, uh, who has brown hair. And um, Eleanor is written in the same color orange uh, under her. And Park is written in blue under him. And between them the wires of the headphones connect and make an ampersand. And it's a really cute, it really matches the tone very well. And it's a really cute sort of, um, sort of, uh, uh, cover graphic because it's really noticeable. Um, and then at the bottom, uh, Rainbow Rowell's name is in the same sort of handwriting, not even handwriting, kind of handwriting font, like hand print font almost. And, uh, a novel is in a word balloon. So, um, it's very cute, but without being too cutesy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it fits the tone really well. Um, it wasn't until I actually opened the book where I realized the book was set in 1986. Because every time I saw the book at Barnes & Noble, I would just say, oh, and it was a very noticeable cover because it had a... It was like... Um, it was one of those book covers of, of young adult stuff that was always out like on a shelf somewhere, and you'd notice it because of just the just the design of the cover. So, but yeah, so the, the cover lends itself very well to emoji. Um, you were the reason I read the book sort of. Oh, okay. Explain. Well, as we explained in a past episode, which I can't remember if it was last episode or two episodes ago, you and I have this kind of going thing on Goodreads where we've been, um, we both we both have what I read in 2017 lists, and we're we have a friendly competition going to see who can read the most books this year. And every once in a while, I will check out how we are doing, and consistently we're within one or two of each other. Uh, you're usually ahead by one or two. I mean, we might be tied, or we might be within one right now. And I noticed that you had read this. And I'd heard of it, and that prompted me to pick it up. Oh, wow, okay. I, I, I didn't know I had such power. Well, so so I picked it up. I checked it out at a library, and then I went and bought a copy. So, so yeah. Yeah, because you liked it so much. I did. I really liked it, but, but we're going to get into that in a minute. What's your history with the book? Because I already said I, I picked it up because I saw that you had read it, and I was like, I've been kind of curious about this book, and I'll go ahead and read it. Um, what about you? Yeah, I sometimes get off track with my Rory Gilmore reading list, and I like to take a break from it and check out other books. And I was looking for sort of the the must-read 
YA novels and ones that I that were palatable. So I wasn't really looking for fantasy um, werewolves and vampires. Sort of been there, done that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was looking for something that was a little more substantial potentially and and had merit attached with it. And so I found a list and um, that and I picked a, a few of them off of that list that I felt like, yeah, these will be good. So A Wrinkle in Time was one of them. How's Moving Castle, which is an anime that I re- really like. So uh, it was great to read that and, and see where the anime actually took its origin from. And then this was another one that was on that list. So I read this back, I guess it was late winter or, or early spring. And I think, I don't know if I said it off air last episode or... It was on air, but I forgot to review it or at least mention it on my own show, Backroll the Oracle. And so I <laughs> I brought it back up and said, I forgot to do this. And then I mentioned you. I said, you know, Tom would probably really like this book, mainly because of the time period that it was set in and the pop culture references. <laughs> uh, it really seemed some, like something that would be up your alley. And, and then, of course, when you were – taking so long to introduce what book you were going to do, I basically realized that you were going to do Eleanor and Park. So my history is shorter, but got it from a, a best of list, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Cool. And it should be noted that our history with this book is going to be relatively short, because it is the most recent book that we've done. This book was published yeah. in 2013, so yep. this isn't like... Um, like a lot of the other books we've done that have been around for decades and, you know, we finally got around to reading them or we'd read them back in high school or something. So, um, but as usual, I'm going to do a little bit of background on the book and the real life history of the author. Uh, it's got an interesting, there's a couple of really interesting, uh, bits about it. Um, and then I'll get into what the book actually is about. Uh, Rainbow Rowell was born in 1973, which makes her only four years older than I am. Wow. Yeah, and it would put her at, if she were a real-life person, or if she is a real-life person. What? If she were If she were a character in the book, or if she were okay. in the world of the book, she would have been 13 when the book takes place. Um, I was nine. Uh <laughs> Rainbow Rowell is an author who lives in Omaha, Nebraska, and that's where Eleanor and Park actually does take place. Prior to writing her first novel, she was a columnist and copywriter for the Omaha World Herald for nearly 20 years, from 1995 to 2012. She's written two adult novels, Attachments, uh, which I will jump in and say that uh, Jen Bates, who I taught with at William Monroe, uh, was reading uh, a couple weeks ago and recommended it to me, so I might actually check it out. Uh, and Landline, as well as three young adult novels, uh, Eleanor and Park, Fangirl, and Carry On. And uh, those were written between 2011 and 2015. The latter two, uh, Fangirl and Carry On, are actually related to one another, and they both received critical acclaim and sold well. Uh, and an interesting bit of trivia is that Fangirl's first draft was written as part of NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. In 2012, and if you're under, un, if those of you out in the audience are unfamiliar with National Novel Writing Month, it is a challenge where you attempt to write 50,000 words, or which is about 200 pages of the first draft of a novel in 30 days throughout the the uh, 
throughout the month of November. I've actually finished it twice. Both of those books were never published, but the fact that this that Rainbow Rowell got a kind of a career out of it a little bit, that eh, gives me hope for maybe the future. Anyway, Eleanor and Park, I would say, is probably her best-known novel, or at least the one novel of hers that I've seen the most in bookstores and I've seen the most carried around by students uh, where I teach. It's a bestseller. It's also a critical success, with one of the positive blurbs for it coming from John Green himself, who said that Eleanor and Park, quote, reminded me not just what it's like to be young and in love with a girl, but also what it's like to be young and in love with a book. The books won its fair share of awards. They include the, a 2014 Michael L. Prince Award Honor Book for Excellence in Young Adult Literature from the American Library Association, the 2013 Boston Globe Horn Book Award for Fiction, the New York Times Book Review named it one of seven notable children's books of 2013, the Association for Library Service to Children, the Young Adult Library Services Association, or YALSA, as well as Booklist recognized the audiobook version of Eleanor and Park with a 2014 Odyssey honor, Indie's Choice Young Adult Book of the Year by the American Booksellers Association, Amazon's Teen Book of the Year and Top 10 Book of the Year, a Goodreads Choice Award for the Best Young Adult Book of the Year, the uh, YALSA Top 10 Best Fiction for Young Adults, Audible's Best Teen Audiobook of the Year, uh, among some others. Um, and by the way, if you're a teacher listening to our episode and you want to know where to get any information about what good contemporary young adult literature is out there, uh, I would recommend talking to your librarian, either the one at your school, the one at your public library. But beyond that, uh, the Young Adult Liter- Library Services Association also has a great website. They publish test- best of lists every year. They're a great resource for, for stuff. And uh, you can find them at ala.org slash YALSA. Y-A-L-S-A. Now, the book was also the center of some controversy in 2013. Anoka High School in Minnesota was going to have Raul come to the school to give a talk, but rescinded the invitation after a freshman student, their parents, and the conservative group, the Parents Action League, objected to the book's presence in the school library and called for its removal. According to the story from the Minneapolis Star Tribune, quote, the parents of a high school freshman partnering with the Conservative Parents Action League challenged the book's place in school libraries, calling it, quote, vile profanity. They t- cited 227 instances of coarse language and sexuality, unquote, which were outlined in a 13-page document the parent Troy Cooper sent to the school board, which included using the Lord's name in vain, including 60 instances of the F-word. The book had been part of a voluntary summer reading program called Rock the Book. And a com- yeah, sorry, I love Who libraries. Who comes up with this? Just yeah, like you're not you're not helping. Uh, a committee reviewed it and ultimately decided to keep it on shelves. Of the controversial language and other content the parrot cited, Anoka principal Mike Farley said the group liked the book. They felt the writing was skillful. We talked a lot about the key themes in the book: bullying, poverty, abuse, love, body image, and the power of language. They felt the high school students would relate to the themes and be familiar with the language. We did acknowledge some of the language is rough, but it fits the situation of the characters, he said. If you remove that, it wouldn't be the same. Rowell herself weighed on the controversy at a panel about suppression in young adult literature at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul. According to the Star Tribune article, Rowell, who also grew up poor, poor 
said she set out to explore first love. I was thinking about how when you are 16 and fall in love, you fall in love with every cell of your body, she said in her earlier interview. I didn't plan to write about poverty, bullying, domestic abuse, and racism, but they're in the book. It just happens. Everything I wrote about was something I experienced or saw happening around me. She's spoken in schools across the country. Anoka is the only school where she's been challenged, she said. If this book is too obscene to read, what is it saying to the kids going through that, Raoul said. The book is about rising above. It's about two people who are not defined by this garbage. And uh, I need to give credit to the Minneapolis Star Tribune and Wikipedia for a lot of the information uh, where I got that from about the controversy. So, um, so yeah, it's been it's been popular. It's been challenged, and uh, we're going to take a look at it. So, maybe we should have called this podcast the almost censored podcast or the almost uh, banned booked podcast <laughs> because clearly the only thing we are you know choosing have been potentially banned every time i come across like the most challenged or banned lists even the classics ones on like you know for banned books week or from the ala like so many of them were books i read in high school mm. and in this case, it was language and such, and that's gonna get that gets somebody somebody gets up in arms about it all the time. Um, you know, and I have issues with with such things. So, but that was actually I did an episode about Band Books Week back in 2014, I think. So, <laughs> I've already I've already given my stance on that. So, anyway, we are going to review. Uh, we are going to review the book, and I'm going to. We give are. This, yes, we are. Yes, apparently that's what we do on this show. It's news to me. I don't know what you. She's doing. She's doing that thing where, yeah. um, and, and Shag, Shag has pointed this out too, where oh, she'll okay. just sit there. Oh, yeah, and no, she'll just let that. you keep going and going and going. She says she's listening, but she's just trying to make you feel uncomfortable. I would hand you the shovel for you to keep digging, but yeah, well, yeah I'll just it, stand there. It's not hard for me to keep digging. I, I <laughs> when when you, I can't deal with uncomfortable silences. You sit there, oh. and I'm gonna, I'm, I can't shut up, Stella. <laughs> you need to talk to your medical professional about that. Yeah, apparently. So anyway. what's this book about, Tom? Well, let's find out. <laughs> oh my gosh. So the very first page of the book reads like this. Oh. He'd stopped trying to bring her back. She only came back when she felt like it, in dreams and lies and broken down deja vu. Like he'd be driving to work and he'd see a girl with red hair standing on the corner and he'd swear for half a choking moment that it was her. And he'd see the girl's hair was more blonde than red. And that she was holding a cigarette, wearing a Sex Pistols t-shirt. Eleanor hated the Sex Pistols. Eleanor. Standing behind him until he turned his head. Lying next to him just before he woke up, making everyone else seem drabber and flatter and never good enough. Eleanor ruining everything. Eleanor gone. He stopped trying to bring her back. It's 1986. 
Park Sheridan is a pretty small Asian American guy who lives in a working class area of Nebraska, of Omaha, Nebraska, called the Flats, with his dad, an ex-military guy who Park perceives as wanting a son who is more manly and into sports, and his mom, a Korean woman who works out of their garage as a hairdresser, and she's also an Avon lady. Park has a younger brother named Josh who is younger by three years but more extroverted and sometimes seems like he's the older sibling. He's certainly more of the guy that their dad seems to want in a son. While Park does have a best friend named Cal, he spends his bus rides alone and trying to avoid the teasing and other sophomoric behavior of Steve, Tina, and their friends, although it should be noted that he does get along with them at times. That is until he meets Eleanor Douglas. She's a new girl at the school and doesn't live too far away from him, but her home life is drastically different. She lives with her mom, her mom's boyfriend, Richie, and four other kids who are much younger than she is in Richie's cramped house. Eleanor sleeps in a bunk bed while most of the other kids sleep on the floor of one bedroom. The family is incredibly poor, which means that Eleanor often wears odd mismatched outfits procured from Goodwill. Eleanor is also fat, and she has very striking red hair, which earns her the name Big Red from Tina and the rest of the popular crowd. In fact, she is immediately targeted by Tina for bullying on her first day, really from the moment she first appears, because Tina and her friends pull a prank on her that forces her to sit next to Park on the bus. If all of that's not enough, by the way, we are told that it's not so much that Eleanor recently moved back to the flat, recently moved to the flats, she's returning. Richie had her kicked out of the house a year ago and recently let her come back. In that year, she stayed with friends, and while she felt that she was imposing on them, she definitely felt her life was more stable. Now, at Richie's house, she often feels alone and scared. While in the past, she was able to protect them and help her siblings take a side against Richie, it seems like they seem to be more willing to accept Richie as their father. Eleanor and Park cannot stand one another at first. He thinks she's weird and annoying and does what he can to avoid her. Soon then, he realizes that she's reading his comic books over his shoulder, and they eventually connect more, especially when they seem to have similar interest in music and both have a passion for critiquing the latest issue of Watchmen. While Park's life seems to revolve more and more around his relationship that he struck, stuck, struck up with Eleanor, to the point where he doesn't spend very much time around his friend Cal anymore, we see that Eleanor's life is a mess, both at home and at school. At school, Tina and her friends play awful pranks on her, taping sanitary pads to her gym locker, and even dumping her clothes into the toilet. Someone is also writing crude things in her textbooks. She assumes it's Tina or one of her crowd because, well, of all the other things that they've been doing to her. At home, Eleanor has to contend with Richie's abusiveness. He does not have a phone in the house. Eleanor has to hide her personal belongings from him. And he also does not allow her any privacy. In addition to all the kids sleeping in the same room, there's no door on their bathroom. So Eleanor makes sure that she takes a bath when she's not around, when he's not around. It affects like there's like a curtain partition, of course, the shower curtain. Eleanor and Park begin to see one another in secret, mainly because her mother, Sylvia, has forbidden her to have a boyfriend. Eleanor, funny enough, uses Tina as her, quote, best friend as this cover story, and it actually works. She also does what she can to hide the details of her home life from Park, and one of the few times that their relationship becomes more open is when Steve bullies Eleanor and Park fights him, kicking him in the mouth, and there's a great little detail about Steve never 
forming a fist correctly and therefore breaking a finger when he punches someone. Park's mom grounds him for the violence and also because she really doesn't like Eleanor very much. But his father understands why Park was defending her. and He knows Richie from the bar and he knows how much of a scumbag Richie is. After Park's mom sees Eleanor's family in the grocery store and she figures out how awful this girl's life really is, she has a change of heart, which includes giving Eleanor a makeover, or at least some makeup, and uh, inviting her to stay over. Eleanor gets an offer. Eleanor also gets an offer to stay with her uncle in Minneapolis so she can go to, to a camp for gifted and talented students. Richie immediately rejects the idea. The climax of the novel occurs when Park's mom encourages the two of them to go out on an actual date. It's a near-perfect evening in downtown Omaha, but all of that is shattered when Eleanor returns to home to find her mom and Richie having an enormous fight and all of her secret belongings scattered throughout her bedroom and destroyed. Not only that, she finds a note from Richie and recognizes the handwriting. Well, he's the one who's been writing vulgar messages on her textbooks. Fearing for her safety, Eleanor runs away and winds up in Steve's garage, where Steve, Tina, and their friends give her a beer and prove to be way more empathetic than she thought they would be. In fact, Steve violently hates his stepfather, and Tina actually winds up covering for her. Eleanor then heads to Park's house, where she and Park come up with a plan to sneak out in the middle of the night and head to her uncle's in Minnesota. But as they get started, they're caught by Park's dad, who actually understands what's going on and gives them the keys to his truck. They drive out of Omaha, stop a few times, and eventually wind up at Eleanor's uncle's house in Minnesota. The two part ways, and Park returns to Omaha. In the six months that follow, Park sends Eleanor packages and letters, but she never responds. He walks by her house frequently, but she's never there, and neither are her mother and her siblings. It's implied that Eleanor's uncle either got them out of Richie's house, or her mom finally came to her senses and left. Park does see Richie one day, and he's tempted to actually kill him. But Richie's so drunk that he can't stand up, so Park just kicks some dirt in his face. He then tries to get out over Eleanor, but he can't, and he becomes depressed. Eleanor attends the theater camp for gifted and talented students, and she goes to a new school, and she seems to be able to put much of her past behind her. Park goes to work at a record store, even kind of goes out with one of his co-workers, but his heart is clearly not in it. The novel ends when one day Park receives a postcard from Minnesota with three words written on it. Minnesota. Minnesota. So, I've done enough talking, and here's the question we always ask to kick off our discussion. Did you like Eleanor and Park? I did enjoy Eleanor and Park. Uh, it's it's a rough novel. I think I went into it with different expectations because I think when given the outline of what this book is on Amazon or whatever blurb you're reading, I, I, they certainly don't go into the depth and the level of issues that appear here. So I thought I was just going to see the year in in the life of you know two teenagers in love but th- there's certainly more than that so it was enthralling i was engaged I, it's a quick read i i went through it very quickly probably because i was so engaged so yes i did enjoy it cool i did too um i'm 
I should be a mark for for stories like this. Like you said, it's right in a decade that I love. I am a John Hughes fanboy, like Who's crazy. He? John Hughes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. Did Thank you, know, you for I listening. I wasn't even born to... yet. <laughs> That's, that'd be funny. I wasn't even born yet when uh, this when these two crazy kids were falling in love. I was still in my mommy's tum tum. August 8, 1986. Do you have anything to say about that? Hello? <sighs> wow. So I really like the book. Um, there's no way to come back from that. So we'll just keep going. Um, no, I, I really like this too. I, I was just thinking about how like I should be marked for these things, like John Green novels as well. I may bring up John Green because he was in a blurb, and uh, I have read one John Green novel. I might read another one, uh, but I like this. I think if even if it was set in modern day, I would have liked this. I really liked her. Um, her style of writing because I felt that I liked how she knew when to go for it in terms of emotion but she also knew when to pull back and she's, she's writing from a place that's very very real and I could tell because um, I read uh, Paper Towns is a great novel but it also is a little bit more fantastical in that sort of like nobody actually does this sort of thing sort of way you know in terms of the circumstances of that book but this which also has a road trip in it seems like um it seemed a little more realistic in, in that regard and I, I really really liked it um do you see yourself in either of these characters as Eleanor or uh, Park? Yeah, I would. I think I probably see myself more as a Park than an Eleanor. Thank mm-hmm. goodness. Um, <laughs> but mainly because uh, you know, I think the comics there, and uh, you know, being a little odd, an odd duck, um, and being loved by one's family but still being a bit of an odd duck so i would say i'm more of a park than an eleanor yeah me too did you know anybody like eleanor or i mean even if it's like even if you didn't know anybody um when you were younger who like was that abused or whatever because like eleanor's situation is just horrendously awful yeah but there's this girl who like has her guard up like this did you know anybody like that I'm sure I did. I can't, you know, right now okay. recall. But, you know, even teaching um, but eighth graders and mm-hmm. high schoolers as well, I, I think we really have no idea the sort of lives that they are forced to lead. Yeah. Um, because, you know, even at the school that I teach, there are some major issues there. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, it's certainly not going away. So I, I'm sure I did know of someone like this, but I can't just, I can't specifically recall. Yeah. I, I knew a couple of people who, without getting into specifics, were not, were not in situations like this, but they, whatever emotional 
issues or family issues they had were what the reason why they never let you get too close to them. Because it's something that that Eleanor throughout the novel is um, very, very careful with, like trying not to be too vulnerable to even Park, who she's clearly, who's clearly in love with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew I knew girls like that. I knew guys like that too. That that like you know they clearly put up they put up certain walls and things like that. And then, and in some cases, you're right. You don't know until like years later when. Um, when you when you run into them as adults and or you hear you know you have conversations with them and you know they've they've healed in some way or they've gotten out of whatever situation they've been in. Um, tragically, there were a couple of people I knew, uh, either you know second second third hand you know acquaintances and in fact actually somebody who was a good friend of mine uh, at one point in high school um, couldn't escape these things and uh and and harm themselves and in one case did uh an old friend of mine did kill herself and and so it it stirred up a lot of that too for me Mm -hmm. in thinking about people who i knew because these two to me did seem like very real people which you don't always get from young adult novels right because they always seem like kind of archetypes so we both liked it we both Scene. Did you like both the characters? I did like both of the characters. I think I, in analyzing the characters, I think I'd be a little more harsher on Park than I would on Eleanor. I feel like Eleanor is a stronger character, if only because of what she's put through. Mm-hmm. And um, I see, while she does have a selfish streak, I think, in, in leaving Minnesota, but I mean, what what else could she do? Because I only say that she's slightly selfish because she leaves her her siblings, but yeah. there was really no alternative. It, you know, she, it was probably going to come to blows with her. Um, but, you know, she takes care of them. She's looking out for them constantly. And I think she has a great concern for, for what happens to them over her. And she's struggling a lot. And I think she's trying to push past who she is or who other people have put on her to be. Um, so, <clears throat> I just feel like she starts from the bottom and really works her way up. Whereas Park, for me, I just feel like he's wishy-washy and he does things at random because you just like the the mascara, just like suddenly he's going to wear this mascara, mm-hmm. and it could be you know symptomatic of I guess what he's listening to. I'm sure you can comment on that later on. Yeah, but it just seems like he doesn't really know who he is at this point in time, which I guess is true of many high schoolers. Uh, once he becomes fixated on or obsessed with Eleanor, he basically drops Cal and he's like only focused on her. And he's also very easy to go in with the crowd. Um, which, again, I guess there's some authenticity there because what other ways are there for you to be to protect yourself and not be the brunt of the bullying, well, of course, you can join the bullies. But so for me, I just feel like Eleanor is her own person and she stands on her own, even though she does have those walls, whereas Park is a bit weaker and he's relying on others and is more of a follower than a leader. 
Yeah, and we'll and we'll come back to some of those other characters at some point because um like Steve you've got Steve and Tina and that scene toward the end, right before they leave for Minnesota where it's revealed that like, you know, hey, they're in just as but they've just got as much crap in their lives as everybody else and um I it was it was a twist to me because I don't know about you but the entire time that she's seeing teen, that she's seeing um, Park and she's lying to her mother saying I'm going to go hang out with my best friend Tina I was waiting for Tina I was waiting for either her mother to run into Tina at like the grocery store and mention something Tina being like, what the hell are you talking about lady? And the jig being up or Tina to find out and then rat out Eleanor because that's like how these things go. If it's like, you know, a like a TV show or something and it yeah. never happens. And in fact, Tina and Steve like both do a solid for her in a way that she like completely doesn't expect. And I really liked that toward the end because it actually did feel realistic mm-hmm. to me. Um, and the pressure's off once the public eye's not on you. Yeah. So yeah. I think to a certain extent, Steve and Tina have a certain persona that they feel like they need to keep up when mm-hmm. others are around. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty intimate setting. <laughs> and I'm sure they were mellowed up by the alcohol as well. Oh, yeah. So you probably got a, a true sense of who they were in that scene. Yeah. And, um, I, I mean, not to wholly absolve from all the things, well, especially Tina, yeah. uh, you know, of what she did, but to poor Eleanor, but at least she came through when it really counted. Yeah, and you've got Steve doing that, like... Almost like Cameron at the end of uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's like, who do you love? You love a car. And he's kicking the car. And it just, it just reminded me, like, cause he's just, like, you know, cursing at his stepfather, like, who's not even there. He's like, yeah, that. You know, he's just, and, and, uh, and Eleanor seeing these people in a different light because when you're, when you're a victim of people like that, you build up their persona in your head the same way they build up yours. Because you don't want to admit that they might actually be human, because it's it makes it it almost makes it harder for you to deal with it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so she obviously had built up in her head like you know all these people, and then you know all of a sudden it's like wait. Um, and the thing they make fun of her the most for I mean there's a couple of things. One, she's. Um, She's dressing in like goodwill clothes, Salvation Army clothes that she's uh, not even, I don't think she's even redesigned them like it's pretty in pink or something. She's just wearing very, very used clothes, which fast forward this story about five, six, seven years, and you're in the early 90s and everybody's wearing, you know, crappy-looking vintage clothes, holes in the jeans, flannel. You know, like, she's... Eleanor, you picture almost as grunge before grunge. Mm. But in the mid-'80s, um, in in the John Hughes world of things, it's, it's the very preppy look. In a place like Omaha, 
I'm picturing kind of like acid wash jeans, neon <laughs> neon shirts, and you know, the higher the hair, the closer to God. You know, just big hair, you know, Bon Jovi type of stuff, you know, that sort of stuff. And and clearly so not like preppy rich brand name stuff, but the definitely put together Harris Aquanet within an inch of your life type of look. And Eleanor is not that. Eleanor Eleanor is is um she's poor. Uh you can imagine she's probably pretty dirty a lot of the time, even though she does her best to shower in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. Um, which becomes kind of the part of the, the whole thing. And um, she's also fat. And uh, and um, that's one of the issues, one of the many issues that comes up. It's one of the things they make fun of her for, for being, for being poor and being fat. And, and the body image and body shaming and the fact that she's the fat girl uh, is something that I noticed uh, quite a bit in, in this book and I, I thought was handled very deftly. Um, what did you think of that aspect of her character and, and how that was portrayed by Raoul and, and how she wrote it? Uh, it's portrayed well and by saying well, it's very bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the things that is sadly authentic in in this particular novel because it's happening now and it is going to probably continue to happen unfortunately because it's perpetuated in social media um yeah I, you know <laughs> it's it's I, I don't know how much more I can say besides the fact that it's sad but it, you know I, I think I was less focused on her. Well, she's very focused on it, I will mm-hmm. say. So you, she will never let you forget it, unfortunately. Um, and that's really sad because that's just always there for her is, is her, um, her general ugliness as she sees it. Um, even in the intimate scenes, um, she's concerned with Park's hand on her stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's just always there. Um, so you never forget it, but I feel like for me, the, the abuse scenes were a little more intense, but that's not to say that the body shaming is not a, a real life thing that we need to be concerned of. Um, I like how it's portrayed here because it is, as you can tell, very negative because I think if something like this, mature themes like this are portrayed, it needs to be done properly so that people aren't saying, you know, oh, it's actually okay after all. So, you know, it's put into as horrific a light as it needs to be so that people can realize that it's not a good thing and it needs to stop. What did you think of the makeover that her mom, that his mom gave, uh, Park's mom gave her? Um, it's dual layered, or I guess I have two, two thoughts for it. Um, to a certain extent, I think it helped her self-esteem wise Mm -hmm. though right afterwards she had to wash it off and it it was almost i guess symbolic of who she is with park and who she is at home because with park she can be someone else and perhaps someone that she really wants to be but at home she she's put into whatever little box she is over there Mm -hmm. um but the sad thing about it though is that 
in doing that, the mother almost perpetuates Eleanor's belief that she is ugly. Yeah. Because, you know, saying, you know, you, you know, get a makeover is basically, you know, saying that <laughs> there's something wrong and I can correct it with with a little bit of makeup. I, I'm sure that's not what her, his mother intended because she seemed like a very sweet and innocent character. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a sense, that is what's happening there. Well, and I got the feeling that Park didn't particularly like it. He didn't hate it, but it, it like it just didn't feel right to him when she. Maybe I'm misremembering or misreading it. That like his reaction was not like, "Oh my God, you're gorgeous," type of thing. It was, it was a lot. I think he felt uncomfortable. Yeah, it was uncomfortable. And I read the scene, and I and I and I get the. I, I totally understand what you mean by Park's mother because I think that's what her intention was. She was trying to do something nice for this girl who she really doesn't like at the beginning when they start going out, and she just she's very very critical, and then she warms to she has pity on first of all because she sees she sees the family in the grocery store and the family are like. They're like something out of like one of those Dorothea Lang photographs from the Depression, like the migrant mother ones from like in the 30s, where it's just mm-hmm. like the 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 woman, these four or five kids, and these you know, and they're just and uh, and she she feels pity for them, but I think she re- she does like the light bulb kind of goes off and she kind of realizes the whole situation. But I also, in a way, and. As usual, I'm jumping around. Um, our questions. I also, this in a way, saw this as slightly metatextual because at the end of The Breakfast Club, Molly Ringwald's character, the pretty princess with the makeup and the stuff, gives Ali Sheedy a makeover, and Emilio Estevez is like, character Andy's like oh you're so pretty now and blah 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 and it's been a lot of people who criticized that scene in the breakfast club that like you know why can't you let her be who she is why are you trying to you know why are you trying to ugly duckling her into a swan why are you trying to you know she's all that came later but you know what I mean Mm that sort of make her over and on one hand you can say about that scene about that Molly Ringwald this is the only way she knows how to be nice and blah 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 and I saw that scene in that whole thing and the way that Park reacts as being kind of uncomfortable with it is I was wondering if Roll's actually taking that trope and turning it on its head just a little bit because it's because she's essentially she's essentially she's setting the story in the 80s and I was wondering if she just taking bits and pieces of tropes from what we know of eighties and teenagers and, and twisting them just enough to show that, no, this is actually what really happens. And, and, but playing with the tropes in such a way that we're familiar with the story and we're like, okay, you know, like, you know, every time we say, well, that wouldn't really work. And you see like how it actually does. And sometimes you're like, Oh wow, that actually does work. And sometimes you're like, actually feel a little bit worse for the characters (laughs) and stuff. Or am I going too deep into like my? Are you gonna have to reel me back from the edge of nerd here? Am I? Am well, I mean, you you have more of a 
an authority on this particular issue. I, I've seen several John Hughes films, mm-hmm. but I feel like I'm not as, you know, professor of them as you might be, and and also not growing up in the 80s. I can't really comment on that too much. Mm-hmm. If would you say that? Are teenagers in the 80s distinct from teenagers of today? Because when I read this, I'm really only seeing problems of today. I I don't think they're very that much distinct. Um, I was, okay. you know, from what I remember of teenagers in the 80s, which I don't have, I had my, some of my cousins and things like that. Um, my teenagers were the 90s. And I see a lot of the '90s in this as well, so I think you're mm-hmm. right. I think you're right in that regard. I was just wondering if she was having a little fun with the genre while she was telling the story, too. She might be. I, I didn't really see that at all. I, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Well, could we um, something that we we are actually uh, we're actually talking off off air on and and texting back and forth. Could you set this today? I mean, like, because I, I, Raul makes a lot of 80s references. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the one that... I, I, was, I, was try, I was flipping through the book and I was trying to find ones. There's a lot of references to um, new wave music, some punk music, I guess what we would refer to as more independent music or music that was more, quote, alternative than what was mainstream popular in 1986, which would have been Bon Jovi or something like that, you know, like in in hair metal, like, you know, that's not Eleanor Park. Eleanor Park are um, Elvis Costello and uh, The Clash and The Cure and, and in the Smiths and and um, Joy Division and and you know some some of these groups and uh, the only the only pop culture reference that seems very vital to their relationship is Watchmen and because they're because as they start to go out Watchmen's being published and they're reading it as it's coming out. Mm-hmm. So it would be I. So in my mind, she could reframe the story as to have it come now. She would just have to f- find something else to put in there. What was your What was your feeling on that? Could you? Yeah. Well, I I feel like the '80s for me. Well, this this right here. It was just a veneer that was sort of put on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it informs every part of the the plot. Um, it certainly connects them. I, I think this is really how the two of them start to uh become not enemies or uh-huh. however however you would describe them initially um but you could easily you know switch the comics that they're reading x-men um and watchmen for for something else and then the music i think you could keep the music the same potentially because you know yeah um as well as i do that you know students find their way back to some of these classic hits back then so i I think that would very much work the thing about x-men though which i actually i disagree with you slightly about watchmen i understand what you're saying because it's coming out so Mm. you know um, that makes sense. But with X-Men, 
you have to think about, and I don't know if she's doing this, so this could be going <laughs> into too much depth as well, but X-Men, the whole premise, is about these group of people who are despised by the human race, and they very much are representing all those sorts of minority groups that have had you know, a struggling and floundering past to get yeah. recognition and rights and everything. And then here you have these two kids who, in every sense of the word, are misfits and don't really fit in anywhere. And I just feel like X-Men is, is a great little connection to that. Um, so I feel like maybe that one connects a little bit more uh, than Watchmen. And isn't this around... Or it might be a couple of years later. My 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 context for what happens during in X-Men in what year of the 80s is a little, you know, is, is not very yeah. good. Yeah. But isn't this around, like, peak Kitty Pride? Like... It should be, because um, they also mentioned Dazzler mm-hmm. and Psylocke, so just given the characters that they were mentioning, it seems like um, that they, yes. However, they did mention Jean Grey, so it's clearly that he must be reading different comics because i think the first thing she mentions is that it took her a little while to figure out that gene and scott were together Uh uh-huh so he might be reading different things yeah yeah we don't know what his comic book collection looks like or um or how it's organized sorry middletons oh my Um, (laughs) but uh no i think i think that's a great point about the x-men i suppose with watchmen you could uh you could have him still reading it, just be reading it in a trade and find something else to put in there. Um, and the more I think about it, the more I'm actually glad that the pop culture stuff is vintage. Because I think sometimes when you're writing a contemporary piece of, especially YA lit, and you're tr- and you make pop culture references that are contemporary to when you're writing it, you run the risk of dating the piece really quickly. Mm-hmm. So, like, if she was making references to how, like, Tina and her friends were believers or something, or they were listening to Taylor Swift or whatever, it might come off as a forced reference as opposed to what Raul does here, which is stay in her obvious comfort zone for where, when and where she, she knows the best. Mm-hmm. So... But I really liked your point about the X-Men, because I hadn't actually thought of that. No. Thank you. That's why I'm here. Yeah. Now I want to go out and... Now I want to get that one essential volume I'm missing so that I can read it. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm missing Classic X-Men Essential Volume 3. If anybody wants maybe to send it to Maybe... Yeah, maybe one of the super fans will yeah. send it to you. It's the one that has that classic Neil Adams cover with Havoc on it screaming oh yes um, you know you'd know it if you if you if you're listening to me you're like which one and it's like you'd know if you saw it um so yeah so the pop culture the pop culture is one it's just kind of a thing a neat little thing that ties it together it, it, it helps in some of the really light more lighthearted moments of the book too or some of the romantic moments where the book needs to you know dial back a little bit in terms of its 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 uh heaviness mm. um Wait has nothing to do with this, Marty. Um, but okay, so we've got this romance between the two of them, but then we have like this undercurrent of sex, 
And not only that, this really dark subtext of this guy her mother is married to or with. I can't remember if they're actually married or not. Um, Richie. And he always reminds her of how how fat she is. Yet, at the same time, there are so many hints dropped. And it all comes together when she discovers that he's been writing all these really... I'm not even going to read them. These really vulgar things on her textbooks. That I think Richie, had she stayed... Richie probably would have tried to rape her because he's clearly a predator. And there's this really, it's, it's really, really dark until the end where she realizes that's like what the thing she's fearing for her, one of the things she's fearing, fearing, like I think at the end when she runs away um, and goes to park because she knows that she doesn't have much time left, especially since all of her stuff's strewn about. It's like, oh my god, he's he's figured it all out. Um, what did you think about him as the actual villain of the of the of the novel? If there's <laughs> the actual villain, yeah, yeah. Well, Tina, you know, Tina's a pretty awful person, but mm-hmm. you know, he's high school. He, yeah, uh, Richie's a monster. Yeah. Richie, oh, yeah. No doubt. Um, well, yeah, I, <laughs> disgusted feeling probably. I, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where you're looking at the situation and you're just asking your question, you know, why, why is this happening and why isn't the mother doing anything about it? And, uh, I just read another YA novel called Everything Everything and there's sort of a, well, it's only a physically abusive, well, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say only, it's a physically abusive relationship, but again, just another situation where the mother's not leaving and there are children involved in everything. Um, I kind of was guessing that it was him who was writing the notes uh, near the halfway point, I think. I wasn't really sure how he was getting the books, but I just thought to myself that, oh, it's probably Richie that's actually doing this. So I felt vindicated once it turned out to be true. But, um, oh, boy, yeah, it's interesting that quote you had said from, I guess, the Tribune, Minnesota Tribune. The Star? The Star Star, the Gazette? Yeah. uh, Okay. Minnesota Star Tribune. Is that she didn't intend for it to go this route, right? She just wanted to do a teen romance novel, I think, as authentically as possible. Uh Uh-huh. And you kind of have to wonder what sort of free writing or, you know, freeform writing turns into this. Because it's one thing to have her poor and destitute and um, fat but then all of a sudden we've added this other layer and part of me it it, it all comes together in the end it, it all works together because it seems like one informs the other but another part of me also thinks that it, it was too much and perhaps that you know we should have focused on one of those layers but um, this is probably this unfortunately is probably someone's actual story so I, I guess you can't really censor anything. I I did find that interesting of how, like, and you're right in the free writing or the drafting or whatever, or as she was going, 
she was adding more layers to Eleanor. Um, and, uh, and I'm wondering, cause see, I really, a, I actually didn't figure out it was Richie until the end of the book. So that genuinely did surprise me. It, it didn't surprise me in that. It was just like, cause it made total sense when she figured it out. I was, Oh, that makes total sense. But I hadn't figured it out before then. So I was like, and so then I was like, Ooh, like that. I also was just, I was scared for her at that moment, which I think this is the exact reaction she was going for <laughs> in the book. So she got me. Um, but it, at the same time though, like I wonder if she started adding these elements to this girl because she was trying to avoid the fat girl cliche of I'm sad because I'm fat and all I see is fat and I'm fat and I'm fat and I'm fat. And, um, there's a pretty girl inside me if he'll only, you know, and if only people would see it, that, that sort of ugly duckling type of, of story. And, or to see all the, the fact that she's putting up these walls to other people because of the real horror she has to deal with. And it's the only way that she can, she can cope in her everyday life because her everyday life is awful. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's genuinely scary. The whole thing with her timing her showers before he gets home because he took the door off the bathroom and you're like, what? And, um, and I knew that he, the, the way it was hinted at, that he was eyeing her, in a sense, that I saw. That I saw, like, through the whole novel. And it's like, and the shower thing was like, that was just one of the things where, but you're right. And the and I did wonder why the mom never really did turn around and leave. But then you're right, I've, I've read other things where there's domestic abuse and the character, even in real life, they don't they don't always leave. You know, they have to be willing to leave. And, and there's things that, that there's fear. There's this belief that they'll change. There's, there's just like a lot, it's a very multifaceted situation that I can't even begin to comprehend. Um, do you think that Raul liked park more than Eleanor? I mean, um, Eleanor more than park. Let me, let me state the question again. Do you think that she liked Eleanor more than park or liked writing Eleanor? More than Park? Gosh. <laughs> well, then I, I'd start to reconsider Rainbow Rowell as a uh, as a person there. She liked, enjoyed um, writing those scenes. I think she not, liked... No, no. Not I, enjoyed, I, I, but like, yeah, yeah, it was more into writing it. I feel like, yes, that's true, because like I said um, earlier, I, I just feel like Eleanor's character is more developed than Parks is. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like more went into Eleanor and I think perhaps, and, and even she said it from her, uh, that interview that you read, um, that I think that these things either um, happened to Rainbow or she witnessed, you know, those sort of things happening. So perhaps a little bit of her is in uh, Eleanor. Um, let's talk about Park for a little bit then. Okay. 
Uh, so, well, because we, we talked a little bit about Eleanor, we talked about Richie, but we've got Park, and his home life is not horrible. Um, his parents clearly love him. His father and him have a strained relationship, mainly because Park's dad doesn't understand what his son doesn't understand why his son isn't more predictable, essentially. You know, like, why isn't he, you know, why doesn't he like sports as much? Why, you know, like this sort of. That sort of male, stereotypical male dad thing of like, you know, of of what, why aren't you fulfilling the role of the gender role that's been assigned to you? And by this time you're a teenager in high school, you should be trying to for the football team, that sort of stuff. And Park has like no interest in these things. And in fact, he seems to avoid his father. Um, but, but other than that, and his mom, his mom's pushy, but it's for lack of a better word, very much more normal, to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. his, his problems seem more mundane by comparison. But do you like him as a character? What do you think of him as a character? Yeah, I like him fine. Um, I, I I just don't see too many strengths in him. Um, like I said, I feel like he just wants to be invisible or if necessary he's going to be with the crowd that controls the situation he's not the nicest of people whereas that you know the very first chapter he could have certainly reached out a helping hand uh for eleanor mm-hmm. um and uh i just i think he does strange things i mean he comes to her house in the middle of the night that one time and that that could have put that entire little room in danger. So I just think he, he doesn't think about some situations uh, as clearly as he should. And then the eyeliner. Could you explain that? Do you think that's just a random thing, or do you think it's because of his his eighties music choice? I think it's I think it's the music. I think it's the image, the music influencing him in some way or another. He also maybe him expressing himself in a way that's different. Again, they're they're very both of them are very out of place. And style wise, in the Midwest, Omaha, the guys wearing eyeliner and in, in is not a thing you know, it's not what you stereotypically expect from a teenager from Omaha, Nebraska. So maybe the mascara is him, like just a little bit of rebellion against the social norms and things like that. I was wondering, I can't remember which one of us asked this question in the document. It was, are they a balanced, a balanced as a couple? Because there are times when I wonder if he's more in love with her than she is with him, or if he puts her on a pedestal in a way. Hmm. Well, he certain. It seems like it because in class he's like obsessively looking at her. Um, but but she in her narration, I think, clearly thinks highly of him as well. It's just she never actually uses the L word. Mm-hmm. So are they well balanced? Um, well, I don't know if you mean are they like comparable or are they compatible that kind of thing or just their level of um, how much are they giving into the relationship? The latter, because I think the former. Okay. I think they're actually very good compatible. Then I would say that Park is more, I think, outward and showing his affection, uh, especially 
when in public as well as alone. I think he's usually the one who's the initiator of um, mm. the intimacy. And I think that's just coming from Eleanor's uh, situation that she sort of put up these walls and also she's very self-conscious. And yet, why does she try to have sex with him in the car at the end of the book? Does she? Can you give me a they page number? Do this? They don't oh, okay. do it. But, all right, so... I want your evidence. All right, hold on, i got to find the page. By the way, I... <laughs> uh, by the way, just as we're... Um, as we're... As I'm looking through here, I, I actually like the switch... If, um, something I forgot to mention in my synopsis. Uh... The book shifts back and forth in a third-person narrative from the point of view of Park and Eleanor. So you'll have different chapters. So you have, like, I'm looking at chapter 38. You have Eleanor, and there's a whole two, three, two, two and a half pages of Eleanor. And you have Park, and there's a few paragraphs of Park. And there's like, I actually like that. I felt it was a really good way to, to do this. It was a really good way to show us things about each of them that the other didn't know about so that there was that dramatic irony was built in while um, they were discovering things about each other. Yeah, there's no... I mean, that's the best way to do it, especially because Park clearly wouldn't know what was going on with Eleanor. I mean, imagine if you took out half of this novel here. Yeah. Yeah. And Park was just wandering around, and you have no idea why Eleanor is acting. Basically, you would be like the mother, Park's mother, because her perception is of Eleanor, just this guise that Eleanor, this mask that she wears. And, of course, you're going to think poorly of someone without actually understanding why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So you kind of need that uh, switching a point of view. Yeah. So we're on page 302, 303. Uh-huh. And, and we go back and it's there's one there's one two three four five point of view changes and um, we go from the kiss had to last forever they had to get it home and then Eleanor um, talks about how in her mind the first time he held her hand it felt so good that it crowded out all the bad things uh, Park Eleanor's hair caught fire at dawn her eyes were dark and shining her arms were sure of her his arms were sure of her the first time he touched her hand he'd known and then. The last two, bottom of 302, top of 303. Eleanor, there's no shame with Park. Nothing is dirty because Park is the sun, which it's a callback to earlier in the novel where they're kind of making fun of Romeo and Juliet. It is and it's also, yeah. Juliet and she also, yeah. And, and she also said this when they were making out when their parents or his parents were at that boat show yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And that's the best way she could think of to explain it. And then we have Park, and it's not thought it's dialogue Eleanor no we have to stop no we can't do this no don't stop Park I don't even know how to I don't have anything it doesn't matter but I don't want you to get I don't care I care Eleanor it's our last chance no no I can't I know I need to believe that it isn't our last chance Eleanor can you hear me I need you to believe it too and I'm, okay I'm I accept your evidence that's my evidence she, she yeah. was trying to have sex with him yeah what was your initial question um, oh, oh, why does she, oh! Why okay. does she? If if she's so, if he's always in, he's always the more intimate one and everything. Why is she the one who tries to have sex with him? Why wasn't it? Because this is the it. This is the end. And as we see, six months go by because she's trying to push him out of her life. Um, 
not for selfish reasons. I, I think it's hurtful for her, but because she believes that he's better off without her. But I think she just wants this one last thing to hold on to as she's held on to basically every touch and what will communique and all those sorts of things that, <laughs> that have happened throughout the novel. So I, I assume that's what's happening there. Is it a realistic depiction of sex? I mean, not not that scene, but just in general. Like, uh, there isn't a lot of sex in the novel. There's some talk here and there, but I, I almost half expected Cal to stick around a little bit longer than he does, only so that you could have that sort of guy friend who seems is so immature that he thinks of things in terms of like getting to third beta or whatever and, mm-hmm. and, and things like that like or or guys like Steve who clearly are expert at locker room talk and I expected you know it just it, it's it was it, it was odd to me at times that neither of the two main characters really do talk about sex and when it comes up kissing and sex and things it's like this weird foreign thing that they don't even talk about among each other i think like park has thoughts and some pretty maybe graphic dreams about her or things like that and yet he can't it's almost like he can't articulate it like his immaturity is even more mature than um than steve or cal who would probably express their immaturity and their lack of knowledge about sex by just basically, pardon my French, using phrases like, hey, did you see the tits on her? And maybe because I was a 15-year-old boy at one point, I know from this or not, and maybe you're just sitting there going, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, Well, yeah, so it's... I mean, I guess the language used is about what you would get, mm-hmm. but you want more of it, is what you're saying? I I was just wondering Make why. Make it more realistic. Yeah, I just not out of park, but I I feel that I think one of the few faults of this book is that that she kind of offloads Cal a little too quickly, and I mm-hmm. totally understand why Cal goes away. As as a friend for Park, because Park becomes more like Eleanor becomes more and more of his world, mm-hmm. and and it totally makes sense. But I feel that like she jettisons him just a little too quickly, and Cal is the type of guy comes off to me as the type of character who would engage, try to engage Park in that sort of stupid macho testosterone locker room talk. And things like that. So sometimes there were points where I'm like, yeah, there's not enough of that, at least in the background, mm. you know, because because Park is clearly like he thinks about sex, but he doesn't think about it in that context. And that makes him mm-hmm. actually slightly better. But I think we need a little bit more of the context. And I don't want to see it coming from Richie. Because well, I think that's the issue. Level, and that's disgusting. Yeah, I think that the issue because it is all coming from Richie. Mm-hmm. So anyone else who is saying stuff like that is, I think, probably going to be associated with him in the reader's mind. Yeah. Because they're going to be talking of it in graphic terms like he is. And so, I mean, what's what's to distinguish a high score from a dirty old man? They're saying the same thing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. 
Yeah, I mean, granted, maybe she didn't have the space to do it, but you're right. I, maybe maybe it would have helped develop Parker's character a little bit more when he rejects that. You know, or we could see him mm-hmm. a little more outwardly rejecting it because, like I said, Cal just kind of Cal's there and he just kind of goes. And Steve's kind of a friend with Park, or friendly enough that he's not always shoving him to lockers and things like that. Then I guess it's supposed to show how like more lonely in the world Eleanor is compared to him, even though Park's just kind of like, I don't have time for half of you, and I'm just going to ignore you and fly mm-hmm. under the radar as best I can. But when they finally do get there, and the, yeah, you're right, they're in Minnesota, and this is like her lap, it's, she's trying to end things be- with something that they'll both remember, because you're right, it's ironic, she's never wanted to become attached in that way, and she's, she is going to end that attachment by doing the, probably the one thing that, quote, attaches you to somebody else the most. Right. In a sense, like... You know, it's it's physical intimacy, and in an, in an ironic way, it's her way of completely detaching herself from the relationship because it's a way for her to put a bow on it in a way mm. and give it an ending. And he's like, "I don't want to do this," mainly because he seems scared. He because the, the I took the I don't have anything, and I don't want to get you as condom and pregnant. Mm-hmm. And and that was that's what that's what that's where I got the O. Oh, she was trying to have sex with him, but they never actually, I don't think they actually ever did it. No, I guess we got, we got about like two or three more questions that I think I want to get, I want to get into. And one of them is a little bit less, um, less about romance and sex and dark subtext and more about the readability of the novel. Um, we both, you, you said you read this quickly. I read, I think I read this within a couple of days and, um, you neglected your family. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I was on the, I was in the sleeping chair, and I managed to stay awake. So. <laughs> okay. I have this. We have this chair. It's this big, really, really comfortable chair, and it's just like I don't care what you're doing. Watching something on Netflix or reading a book, but within like 20 minutes, it's like I'm starting to nod off. So I call it the sleeping chair. Um, but no, I read it. I read it pretty quickly. You said you read it pretty quickly. It's a really, really readable book, and I really like her style. Is does that add like how does how important is that is the novel's readability to its value as a piece of literature? Um, I don't know if I necessarily see a correlation between the two mm-hmm. because I think something could be readable and trash. Um, oh, yeah. You know, not really, not really have literary value. <laughs> um, Oh, okay. I couldn't tell what you said there, but yes, he said Twilight. Um, on the other hand, something could be really difficult to read, but have a lot of literary value. I think of, I think it's Absalom, Absalom, which is very, it's very hard to read because of like the dialect. The dialect? Yeah, the dialects. And uh, that's the right word, right? It sounds weird coming out of my mouth. Dialect. Okay, and like the southern stuff, and um, one of the characters is mentally handicapped, so it's like it's very hard to keep track of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's lots of value and merit there. So 
Um, I think just because we, well, this is coming from me, so I'll be interested to what you have to say. But just because I think we had an easy time with it, um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, something that, uh, should be touted as a good piece of literature. I will say that it's a good piece of literature, Mm -hmm. but I I, I don't know if I'm going to put it up there with, like, Jane Eyre or Mm. something like that. Yeah, sorry, I'm snouty. Snooty like that. You're snooty. Snooty. I tend to agree with you. I think this would be a good gateway piece to Mm. something else that is a little more complex. Mm-hmm. A little more complicated, maybe a little more complexly written, um, either from the past or uh, just of a more like adult persuasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, and you could you could take it whatever whatever theme you want to look at from there. You know, whether it be the romance, whether it be some of the other issues and things like that. Because um, I, I think I, I think giving I think you could give this to somebody who would find it really really interesting. And maybe then turn to them and say, okay, if you like this, then you would like this, and it could be something I don't know, maybe like Jane Eyre or or of or of that vintage yeah. that tackles similar themes or has similar tropes, yet is written at a higher level or is a little more complex, and there's a lot more to unpack. Because I think you're mm-hmm. right, there are great great works of literature that i found you have to read a couple of times to really get because of either uh, uh, the dialect is one might be one or the or just the narrative in itself because there's i don't know magical realism is involved so you're taught like beloved or or 100 years of solitude or even even the one flew over the cuckoo's nest where like mm. so much of the chief Bromden's narrating it, and so much of it is through this LSD haze, yeah, and so stuff like that. So which is it's a it's a great great book, but you're right, it's it's a little more dense. So I, I do have a couple more questions about Eleanor and Park themselves, but before we do that, I would like to I would like to ask the question that always does come up: Would you teach this? Since we're talking about the literary value of it anyway, I would teach it. Um... I would be hesitant <laughs> because of the language. Yeah. Um, though I do think there's a lot of authenticity with this. I don't know if the language is necessarily gratuitous. I, I, there, I mean, there's a lot of it. But mm-hmm. I feel like this is something that you would probably, quite honestly, encounter. Um, yeah. But then, like, the sexually charged language, is um, that sort of makes me, my skin crawl a little bit more. Um, I think it'd be interesting if I had a group of girls only and have it um, sort of paired up with a discussion like um, some sort of like mental health discussion yeah, almost no, yeah. or you know how, how, how can we best love ourselves and looking at those themes because these are real issues that you know, middle school and high school girls are going through. So I think it would be something that I would like, like to tackle with like a same sex group only, and and really get into those uh, issues. And you know, I, I think that based on the some of the sophomores I've taught, especially the last couple of years, I think I would probably approach it the same way because I don't see. Maybe, maybe it's just the class of boys that I taught this year 
I don't see this working with them. Mm-hmm. Yet, I see this, some of the specific girls that I, I taught over the last few years since this book's come out and be like, they would be great in a discussion with this book. And you could have a great discussion and tie this into issues about mental health and issues about family and issues about feminism as well. Body image and, and, and sex and sexuality and things like that. Um, yeah, you'd certainly have to get some sort of like, you know, you'd certainly have to contextualize the vulgarity in the story because she, she purposely uses foul language Mm-hmm. Not just as, like, this is how teenagers talk, but, like, with the stuff with Richie, it's very deliberately chosen that they're, the things are worded that way because you're supposed to see Richie as that character. But we could definitely go into that as well. And I think that, I think you're right. It's it's a very realistic book. And they they would definitely find it. They would, they would get a lot out of it. Going back to the book itself... So they're they're not together at the end. Oh. We talked a little bit about we really we we kind of danced around, but we talked a little bit about why she never actually says "I love you," which you can kind of understand. Is this is this it? What 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 happens to these two? Do they ever meet again? I mean. I'm hopeful. Are, are you? I, I can't. Sometimes I can't tell if you're pausing for dramatic effect or you're ready for me to answer. So I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready for you to answer, and I am saving one specific question for the last one. I'm pretty sure you know what it is. So, <laughs> okay. I think that they both graduate high school and they uh, meet up again. Uh, whether that is to go to a shared college, um, I don't. But I think that once they get rid of high school, because I think that was one of those, (laughs) I mean, that's really almost the core issue in their lives, it seems, and and what had cast them as misfits and rejects, that once they cast that aside, um, perhaps... Time enough time has passed that she can love herself because I think that's one of the reasons she can't ever say I love you is because I don't think she loves herself and I don't think really people have shown her love so mm-hmm. I think she questions what that is and so is unsure and doesn't want to say it I also think that she might think it's fleeting so if she ever says this to Park she's going to completely lose him but that's on the love question yeah so I I, I don't think this is the end uh, I. I think that they'll meet up afterwards and maybe um, this will be a nice little story for their grandchildren or maybe they won't tell the story at all I worry that that's what he wants to happen yet she'll never consciously let it happen Mm. like I really worry that this is it that he wants to make plans with her And he wants to say, tell me what you're doing after we graduate. I will find you. We can be together. I miss you. And she keeps him at an arm's length. Because for whatever reason, maybe she still can't be vulnerable. Maybe she still can't love herself. Maybe he reminds her too much of what happened. Richie and all that. And things like that. Maybe she's so determined to put all of that behind her that she's just going to shut everything out and pretending it didn't happen, at least for now. 
and that the by the time she is ready it's too late I I don't think I don't know if that's what would have happened but I worry that's what would have happened it's pretty depressing it is pretty depressing but at the same time then I see them getting together later on and having an actual romance that may or may not blossom into it into a lifelong thing you know like does because I think if you try to get them together as adults like years later it could definitely happen and then whether or not it works out could just be a whole other novel you know like it could it could or couldn't work out for a whole other set of circumstances you know um, mm-hmm. but I, I I think I I honestly think the novel's ambiguity is one of in its ending is one of its strengths and the last question that I have before we wrap this up is what do you think the three words on the postcard were? Because we don't know what they are. The last line know. of the book. Yep. While you yep, think yep, about yep. this, I will read the very last part of the book. Okay. Um, page 325. 324, 325. So he woke up, he, he goes to prom with this girl, Cat, who he worked with, etc. He woke up the next morning when something light fell on his shirt. He opened his eyes. His dad was standing over him. Mail call, his dad said, almost gently. Park put his hand to his heart. Eleanor hadn't written him a letter. It was a postcard. Greetings from the land of 10,000 lakes, it said on the front. Park turned it over and recognized her scratchy handwriting. It filled his head with song lyrics. He sat up. He smiled. Something heavy and winged, or winged, took off from his chest. Eleanor hadn't written him a letter. It was a postcard. Just three words long. And that's the end of the book. What's on the postcard? Yeah. So I think what we all want it to be is I love you and that she finally, you know, breaks breaks through whatever has been holding her back. And uh, those are the three words. I feel like almost realistically, maybe it would be more like I miss you. So she's not quite there yet. But at least she makes contact because she's been radio silent for six months. Wasn't there a point where one of them says or one of them quotes the phrase "Nothing ever ends"? Or am I missing that? I don't recall. Yeah. I'm more along the lines with you. You want it to be "I love you," mm-hmm. but it's probably more along the lines of "I'll miss you" or "I'll be back" or "I'll call you" or yeah. something, something to just initiate contact more yeah. or tell him or "I'm still here." something because if she's gonna say i love you she's probably gonna say it to his face yeah let's hope so i hope so anyway please and i know i know rainbow rowell's never gonna answer the question it's gonna be like the end of lost in translation oh yeah what did bill mary say to yeah yeah and it's an interesting, just one last point to bring that this was optioned for a movie, but the deal, it's been in development hell because it's been, it was the deal fell through, it was off. Apparently, she was writing a screenplay. On one hand, I'm curious just to see how they'd handle this as a movie. On the other hand, I don't want this to be made mm. because, A, and I, I had a snarky little note in one of our questions. 
if Hollywood actually made this, what skinny girl would they cast as Eleanor? Because, <laughs> like, I just, I just picture Hollywood. I just picture this being screwed up. I picture like, like somebody off of Freeform being plucked out of it and out of the show, out of their show, and being put in there, and they're just like you know. They've got they've got curly red hair yet they're thin, or they're not. Oh my god, this is gonna sound so insensitive. They're not fat enough, you know. It's not like she's obese. No, but she's not like she's not obese, but she's not like I, Eleanor's clearly like a size 12, 14, 16. You know, like she's not a size. She's not like Hollywood fat, which is like a size seven, you know? Mm. You know, like like fat to Hollywood is Renee Zellweger gaining like 20 pounds so she can play Bridget Jones, yet she still looks like Renee Zellweger, just slightly chubby. Yeah. And I feel that's what they do. And you'd look at this thing and be like, yeah, she's still Hollywood pretty. You know, and I just I just don't see this playing very well on screen. Which I think is a So there was a Yeah, I'm thinking now to an America Ferrera film. Oh, I know what it's called. It's called Real Women Have Curves. And actually mm-hmm. now that I'm thinking of it, this seems very similar to uh that film where she uh I mean America Ferrera is pretty I mean yeah. she is shapely. And uh, and I I can't remember who the guy was in there. I remember there was an intimate scene, but basically sort of that relationship between the two of them, and I think self love and things like that. Um, so I, it, it's been done before. I could only hope that they would stay. I mean, if she's writing the script, then she hopefully would have some say in who would be cast. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So for apparently, like it's it's stuck in development hell. Real Women Have Curves came out in two thousand two. Just looked it up. Um, Brian yeah. Seitz played Jimmy. I guess that's the. Um, I guess that is love interest. Love maybe. Interest. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that. Yeah, and I've heard of the movie. I've never seen it. But yeah, but just to say that it's been done. So. Yeah, I think they're making a good point. All right, cool. So. Another one in the books, and we'll we'll talk about what the next episode is going to be. But we're going to do feedback first because we have quite a bit of it. We have one big email, but we have a we have a uh, we have a bunch of um, comments and such on War of the Worlds that come from Facebook. First up from Joe Crawford, he says, I definitely had some of the same problems with the book. The side trip with the brother was distracting and ultimately didn't seem to serve the story. I think the idea of teaching sections of the novel is a great one. There is gold in the book, but you have to sift for it. (laughs) Um, Thanks, Call of the Wild. I will have to add World War Z to my to-read list. Great episode as always. Thank you both for the work and effort that goes into the show. I look forward to reading Persepolis. I listened to this last year from the Classic Tales podcast. Interesting stuff. By the way, the Mulder and Scully reference really works. He was about two feet... Oh, my goodness. He was about two (laughs) feet taller than she was. You're a terrible person, Professor Allen. 
Then from Robert Ward, I had to Google it because I was unfamiliar with it, but dropping H's yeah. is slang. What? Remember our discussion about the... Um, What's an H? The signal man. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was the signal man, and he was going off about, like, you know, how all the proper things in society, like eating peas with forks and stuff. Oh, yeah. And dropping H's, and we both were like, what the heck does dropping H's mean? So... Uh, so apparently dropping H's is slang for literally not pronouncing the letter H in words where it starts off. Oh, just like... So I guess getting lazy? Yeah, or no, like saying, like, instead of hello, saying hello. hello. Yeah. I see. Also, who doesn't love the show V? It's such a good show. Yes. Then from Gord Tolton... Thanks for shouting out the short-lived 1988 TV series. It was low-budget but well-intended and mentioned the incidents of the original novel, the Wells radio show, and the George Pal movie in its backstory continuity. Ironically, Marvel's Kill Raven series in the 70s did the same. The Spielberg Cruise movie is terrible, with absolutely no resemblance to anything more than ripping off the title. And finally, from Rob Kelly, very much enjoyed the episode. I laughed when Tom mentioned having an unabridged edition of War of the Worlds. What's the abridged version, 20 pages? I have an audio clip of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the air radio show, which features special guest H.G. Wells. Wells had just seen Citizen Kane, which he describes as having lots of jolly new noises in it. Thank you for everybody who wrote in on, on Facebook. And uh, don't forget to, you can go to facebook.com slash, I believe it's Required Reading with Tom and Stella. It's it's in the canned outro that we so lovingly put together for you so that I don't have to remind you. But I we appreciate it. And we'll try to read as much as we can on the air. We do have one email. It's from my friend Laura, who actually sent us two emails. Uh, we're going to do one email this episode, and we'll do another, the other one uh, the next episode. And... Uh, Laura and I go way back, shout out, MSCL listies. So she said, I just started your required reading podcast, and I love it already. So up my alley as I work on my degree and eventual MFA to someday teach writing and literature. Woohoo! I have to admit that sometimes while driving in my car and listening to podcasts, I talk back to them. Maybe more than sometimes, and I often wish I could be part of the conversation. While listening to the... to your first of the series on Of Mice and Men. I found myself talking to the speakers and wanting to be in on some of the conversation. What follows is some random thoughts I had this morning while listening. I hope they're not too nonsensical. So these are all about Of Mice and Men. Uh, First, I kept thinking about Curly's wife and the questions and potential issues you were bringing up. Was she a plot device? Did we ever get enough of her to make her a flushed-out character or even a potentially flushed-out character? Is it necessary that we do? I don't know. I wanted to know more. Even when I read it back in high school, I wanted to know who she was, what her story was, and why she married Curly, and what made her so lonely. Also, I would have liked to know her name. Yeah, I was, that was one of the things we brought up, the fact that she doesn't have a name. She's Curly's wife. I'm trying to think back to when we did that. Um, two, the way she was presented reminded me a bit of Mia Wallace uh, from Pulp Fiction, who, those of anybody listening to this has never seen Pulp Fiction, was Uma Thurman's character. Attractive, flirtatious, and warned by others to be off-limits. Warned so much there were rumors that went with the warnings. Wasn't one a foot massage issue? Yes. 
Sometimes I think that Mia was a plot device too, never flushed out enough to truly know her or her motivations. Um, have you, I'm going to assume you've seen Pulp Fiction, but I don't want to, I know what happens when you assume. Have you, are you familiar with what she's talking about? Um, I've seen it, but it's been so long that I would not be able to comment on it. I watched it for the last time. I, I, we watched it like a ton my first couple of years of college. And then I hadn't seen him in years. I watched a couple of years ago. I kind of get what she's saying. And there is a whole thing with Mia being like, you know, the last guy that made a move on her got thrown off a roof by her husband thing. And, uh, you do, you do sort of wonder if she's a plot device, especially because she's the center of the plot of Travolta's character. So that's, it's, it's actually a good, it's, it's good for, for thought. Anybody who, anybody who wants to respond to Laura's email, just feel free to, to write in. Um, we welcome any debate or anything on, you know, even the older episodes. Two big questions back into the email. Two big questions came up for me when thinking about this book again. One, in recent years in writing classes and communities I've been a part of, the subject of appropriation has come up and who has the right to write about certain quote groups for lack of a better word. A somewhat current example is the why is oh, a somewhat current example is the YA book Eleanor and Park, where the wherein the author has been criticized for writing about a male Asian main character and his family. She's been accused of writing him and his family sometimes in a stereotypical caricature way. The subject has been raised about writing and rape as well as mental issues and or mental emotional educational disabilities. This book was written now of mice and men. Would that be an issue? Would it be a debate about whether Steinbeck had a right to had a right to write about Lenny? Is Lenny appropriately written? And two, since you are both teachers and teaching this book, if you have, had you had anyone who was on the spectrum or had an active IEP who was also assigned to read this book, did it impact the way you taught it or would it? Um, Let's tackle the question about Eleanor and Park, actually, because it's something that you and I didn't bring up at all. Uh, Park's half Asian, because um, his dad's American, his mother's Korean, and his mother is portrayed in a way that is a little bit comical, or intended to be comical in a sense, that she's the very loud, yelly Asian mom, uh, and that Park... I don't know if Park is stereotypical or if or if it's more um, his parents. What what did you think about that? She said uh, he knows karate. He does know karate. Um, here's the thing, lady. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Any friend of Tom's is an enemy of mine. Um, the thing about <laughs> do you think she'll think me a terrible person? I think she. There? I think she knows you're being sarcastic. <laughs> Okay. Um, the thing about this is, if you have Park written by, let's say, a, a Korean American woman or person, then you're going to argue why is a Korean American writing a white girl? That's a good so point. it's it, it's honestly this is <laughs> it's funny because I was just talking about this with someone on for my own show Back Row the Oracle, but this idea of uh, diversity and that to a certain extent you want characters written authentically, and the only way to do that is to have actual creators and writers be the people that they're advocating for um and in an ideal world we can do this but unfortunately uh i I, we're not there yet and i think 
like I said, I, Rainbow, I think, sees her, herself a lot in Eleanor. At mm. least I, I kind of feel like that might be true. And But it's not it's not Eleanor and Eleanor. It's Eleanor and Park. And so, you know, she's going to have to do what she can with that. But she even brought up, and again, I'm going back to that article that you wrote, she brought up racism. So I think some of those stereotypes might be um, purposeful. Because she did say, remember in that interview, she said, well, again, she started out just wanting to do teenage love, and then all of a sudden she got into bullying and racism. So I assume it's it's from that point of view. But, yeah, th- it, this isn't the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. No, it's so, not, not at all. So, you know, yes, it's a, it's a white woman. I assume Rainbow is white. Uh, mm-hmm. Writing an Asian character, or yeah, but an Asian person writing a white person is, should also get the same amount of flack as well because they're not living in that sort of situation either. So it's very hard. I, it's We're not there yet, but um, we're coming along with diversity. Yeah, I think you've got a very good point there because, you know, you could say the same thing about a number of other backgrounds. If And, and we hear that about, like, you know, straight white guys writing or portraying certain you know um like writing women characters writing black characters remember um you know the idea that you know you think about it like even in the context of like the lgbtq community where you would have a somebody you know somebody along the lines of me who's just you know heteronormative straight white male writing a lesbian character you know or something like that you know how how appropriate is that and how how do you write that character if you're not with an experience but you're right it does it does flip you know it, it does go both ways and and it is, mm-hmm. it is an interesting discussion to have um and i guess her question was do you think that um Steinbeck would have gotten the same amount of flack back then yeah because she says um yeah if, if this is book if of my was written now would we have a debate about whether or not Steinbeck should have written lenny Oh, Lenny, and, and yeah, even Lenny. you've got Crooks too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, but we—I I think we decided back then that he was written well, like he wasn't a um, just sort of this. Yeah, that's that's the word that you used—a uh, caricature of um, trying to encapsulate all. Uh, mentally handicapped people. Um, but, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, you know, then I think about this great little novel called uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Oh, it's a great book. And I'm book. pretty sure, I think it's Mark Haddon. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I mean, that's about a, a, a young man with autism. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't think Mark Haddon is autistic. So it's. I, I think you have to do lots of research or talk to the people. If if you're not a member of that community, talk to the people who are and mm-hmm. try to have that inform your work as much as possible. But I feel like he did it tastefully with Lenny. Yeah, I I've never I've actually never had the the privilege of, of teaching of bison men because it's just not assigned to the grade levels that I've taught. So I've never had, I've never come across the situation where I've had a student who was on the spectrum in my class being assigned this book. 
Um, and I've had students with Asperger's. Mostly, if they're most of the students I've had who are on the spectrum, mostly of them have, were on the the Aspergers and of something. Um, and the schools where I taught, we had students who were severely autistic, but they were mostly in special education classes because of circumstances surrounding their IPs and things. But it, it's an interesting is an interesting question, and I don't know how I would approach it because you don't want to say like you you want them to read the book because you're like this is a really really good piece of literature but at the same time you don't want to feel like you're insulting them or inviting any ridicule or anything like but then again again it's like you know how much special treatment and how much pussyfitting around do you do with it i can tell you the professional response is knowing if this is going to become an issue that you have to deal with in teaching this book with one particular student, then you just open the line of communication between the student, the case manager, and their parents. So within the actual confines of the professionalism of the school, there's ways to do this to make sure that, you know, they get the most out of it and they don't feel like they're being, um, that they're being given preferential treatment or special treatment or, or being, um, feel like they're being penalized if you say okay everybody else is reading this book but you're going to read something different because i don't want to offend you and they'll feel they're they're feeling like they're being penalized for their um their spectrum disorder or whatever it is uh but at the same time you also don't want to come off as like you know putting them on the spot because you know in in the same way that if you were teaching if we were if we were teaching a class of 20 students and we were covering the civil rights movement and you there was one black kid in the classroom and you just kept going to him for the first question in every discussion you know like there's there's finding that balance between like you know bringing up a topic that needs to be brought up but also like not singling out the person that that um can closely identify with it Laura does go on she said I lied one more question George's act of taking Lenny's life is seen as kindness and love and taking responsibility for Lenny. But was it right for him to take Lenny's agency from him to such a severe degree? It almost like makes Lenny seem like a pet one has to put down. I 100% understand how this is to be read and perceived, but something about it makes me feel uncomfortable. Is George ultimately keeping Lenny from ever being an adult who has to deal with the consequences of adulthood? I don't know completely how to feel. This one part really trips me up and has me internally debating multiple sides. And then she asked, did I ramble enough? I'm going to say no. Uh, Long story short, too late. That's her words, not mine. Um, I am loving this new podcast. Can't wait to listen to more, uh, Laura. And like I said, Laura had another email to us about the Glass Menagerie, but we're saving that till next episode. But let's go back to the question that she asked, and I'm going to ask it of you since I rambled on about the first one. Um, it almost makes seem Lenny seem like a pet, and is George ultimately keeping Lenny from ever being an adult who has to deal with the consequences of adulthood? Well, dealing with the consequences means he's going to die. Yeah, they were going to kill him. Yeah, so he's going to die either way. Um, And 
<laughs> I, I get what you're saying with the uh, internal debate there because um, I, I understand what you mean. Uh, but that time period was not as forgiving uh, towards people with mental disabilities mm-hmm. as we are now. Yes. And he had already been in trouble beforehand, and so he was already probably going to be locked up and or hanged in that other town that they were at uh, for touching that woman's dress. And the, because people generally destroy things that they don't understand, and then here, like he was going to be killed. So his real world, <laughs> um, as you say consequences uh is going to be death either way and i think it's just better to be killed by someone who loves you and whom you love rather than a bunch of strangers who are about to kill you because they hate you excellent point excellent point i'm i don't really have much else to add to that i think you i think you summed it up really really well uh and laura thank you i i first of all i love emails that are that thoughtful um, and I hope I hope we answered your questions as best as we could. Um, Stella was a lot more concise and clear than I tend to be. Uh, <sighs> so, then again, most people are. Uh, we do have one last email. It is from friend of the show, Kimberly <gasps> Rockmore. Kimberly! Dear Stella and Tom, I just started reading a new book, and I was startled to see someone review it by saying, quote, I could barely get through it while I have been enjoying it thus far. My question is, what do you do when you do not enjoy a book? Have you ever not finished a book? Um, I had to rack my brain to see if I ever not finished a book. There's like one or two books within the last couple of years that I do remember not finishing. I have a tendency to power through and finish with the hopes that it'll get better and um, try to find something good in it. But I think that's because I've also been a comics fan for so long and it's it uh, and you know this from as well that I'm one of the, I will hold on to a title for way longer than I have to and buy issue after issue in the hopes that it'll eventually get better. Same thing with TV shows, but, uh, no, the, there's one book, like one or two books that I've, I've just stopped reading in the middle or I just never picked up again because I had, you know, I wasn't really enjoying them and I just, something shiny went by and I, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to follow that. And, um, and I, I know one of them was this book I was assigned, was sort of assigned to read like Curry, the, the, UVA Curry, where, where I'm attending grad classes, was doing this sort of whole school read. Like, everybody in the school should read this book, and we'll have symposiums on it and stuff. And I got about, like, halfway, th- not even halfway through it, like a third of the way through it. I'm like, this is terrible. And I didn't need to read it for a class, and I was like, I'm just going to put this aside and maybe pick it up someday. And But it just wasn't particularly interesting. But usually I power through a book just because I think there's going to be something where I want to see how it ends, or I just want to say, okay, like, yeah, I can do this. But then there are some books that, like, I, I just read a book that I was just like, this. by the end I was like, I just didn't like this book very much. Um, what about you? Yeah, I think it's got to take a lot for me to not finish it. Uh, so I guess I'm with you that I try to power through. The last one that I just stopped, I was just done with, was Everything is Illuminated. 
I was just like, I did not like it at all. And so I just I tossed it aside. I never um, as what? I never picked it up, actually. Okay, well, I mean, you might like it, but I didn't. So that's one of the few there. Uh-huh. I don't know if I've done it to anything else. There are some that I will become bored with. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll be into it maybe for the first couple pages or, you know, 50 pages. Mm-hmm. But then, like, uh, my attention sort of waning. And then I'll sort of skim through to the end and just get an idea of what's happened. I, I Especially if I do really quick reading, I will um, skim over basically the prose and I'll, I'll catch up when I see the, the quotes and things. I'll catch up to what the storyline is. Yeah. Um, so those are the ones that I've, it's just lost my attention kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I generally try to, to power through as much as I can. But um, yeah, that's too bad that <laughs> someone thought the book you're liking is terrible. Yeah. That's always interesting when you think something's really good and someone else says that it's terrible. You ever read like four or five pages of the book, like get to the end of a chapter or whatever, and you know, because you and you close it because you know, whatever you're done for the evening. And you realize you have no idea what you just read? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Okay, so I'm not the only one who's that's, that's happened to, like, I've had that, like, I don't, or you find yourself reading the same paragraph over and over and over again, you're like... Yeah, that that one's, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I Sometimes it's hard to um, summarize books sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, when people see you what you're reading, they're like, what's that about? But, you know, it's, like, too early on to tell them what it's about, or it's just too complicated, like Dune, to explain what's yeah. going on. you got to give the elevator pitch, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that the elevator pitch is not an easy thing to do. Um, uh, have you... Uh, extension question from me. Did you ever use... Cliff's Notes or Spark Notes? I have used Cliff Notes, uh, not for my reading, my general reading here, but in high school, I used them to help me with some things. Did you use them in the proper way, or did have you ever used? Oh them? yeah, because like Spark Notes weren't around when I was in high school. College it was totally Cliff Notes. Cliff, Cliff Notes was your guide through literature. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, Cliff Notes. Yeah, yeah. the so, little yellow. With yeah, the black. yeah, yeah. Did you ever use it in place of actually reading the book? No. It was just as a supplementary guide of, like, I didn't understand or, you know, looking for motifs or something like that. Yeah. Because my junior English teacher was um, quite poor. Uh, oh, yeah, no, I, so I had a It was, had a, a, it was like a struggle, and so we, yeah. yeah. So, for example, we were doing Scarlet Letter, Ugh. and I was like, what is happening? And my mom basically said, do you want me to tell you? with whom Hester Prynne is having an affair because that might help you. And I was like, yeah, just tell me. So she told me and that after knowing that I was like able to better understand what was going on. But like the teacher was basically no help. So that's just yeah, an example. That was also the year I read The Awakening and that didn't help much either. Um, Hawthorne actually factors into the one time I used Cliff Notes instead of reading the book. Oh, Tom, and that you was, let down English teachers everywhere. It was sophomore year of college. It was my American Lit survey course, and it was the House of the Seven Gables. Oh. And I tried and just couldn't get through the book. And we had a quiz or something coming up, or even when it might have just been the discussion or whatever. And I went and bought the Cliffs Notes and used them 
Um, I ended up with like a C in the course. It was just a tough class, but that was one of the one time in 20 years of college and high school and all that that I actually used the Cliff Notes instead of. Because um, the only other time I really remember heavily relying on Cliff Notes was when we were reading the Iliad freshman year of college, and we literally uh. were using them to get plot summary because a lot of us weren't. Like, I, for instance, was reading the book. But I really was finding it hard to follow. So, yeah. but that—that's proper use of Cliff Notes. No, I like threw the Status of Seven Gables aside and picked up the Cliff Notes and just and just read them because I couldn't. Oh, Tom. Yeah, yeah. So, just add that to my rap sheet. So, um, next episode is going to be our tenth episode, and usually around this time in the show. I would ask, since I was hosting, I would ask Stella what our book is for next month, and we be you know, we get that going, etc. But our intention, at least for now, I mean, this may change as we go into many, many episodes down the line, is that every tenth episode we're going to do like a special topics episode. We're going to pick a genre, we're going to pick a theme, we're going to pick something that is not a specific book, but that we'll, we'll talk about. We'll bring our favorite and we'll make favorites of that genre or whatever and make recommendations and analyze just do a very quick sort of you know one hour discussion about about it and what we like about the genre or or whatever and in this case uh we are going to spend the next episode talking about the genre of life stories so biography autobiography and memoir and uh stella and i are going to break down what that genre is what its characteristics are what makes a good biography or autobiography or memoir make what makes a bad one and then uh, give you our recommendations, quick recommendations of some of our favorites from that genre. So you'll be hearing that in about a month. And at the end of next month's episode, Stella will give you her pick for the next book, our series. So uh, until then, we hope you like this episode and hope that you give us some feedback. And thanks for listening. And may glitter fall from the sky upon your head. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? I am a unicorn. Okay, because I was going to say, if glitter is falling, if you're a witch and glitter is falling in the sky, that's good. Because sometimes when things fall from the sky onto witches, their houses. Yeah, I understand. Follow the yellow brick road. Good night. Yes, good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true. That's two true. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. 
Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Um, the that means nothing to our listeners. Um, well, they'll the, cut that out. Okay. I edit my podcast episodes. I can hardly believe it. Um, oh. I don't even know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, what was?